0: About uh, defended origination or petitio semper And Daniel, I'm always happy to talk about about this, especially because um, so many people have made basic mistakes. Um, and part of the reason why the mistakes are made are, is because, first off, the language. Or the translations of the language is wrong and the language itself is somewhat stilted but it's because of the way that people uh understood things 2500 years ago and we understand things a little more sophisticated now um but that um we that kind of leads us to the confusion about what the actual teachings of the buddha were so Um, Let's look at that um, in the in the order starting from the beginning um, is ignorance and that how we use that uh, term for best understanding is to understand that we started out as a child in great ignorance. Every child is completely stupid. Not one baby under the age of one month could possibly score anything on an IQ test. Their IQ would be zero. Right, we all we all start out that way. And so this is the point about the ignorance is, is that the ignorance is the foundation for how we learn things or how we put things together or how we accumulate things, which is the Sankara, is that we build up stuff over time and we do so with a mixture of ignorance. And so everything that a little child learns, they don't learn it the way that an adult would. We learn things as children by either in the beginning accepting, which would be the oral phase. And then uh, the terrible twos is the child gets to the point that now he's rejecting everything. He's trying to establish himself. This is a, uh, They call it the terrible twos because the child learns the word no. And mommy doesn't like the baby saying no to mommy. So when we understand that um, ignorance is what we build our memory systems on, that there are huge holes in our memory systems, there's many, many different ways that I can show you that an easy way would be for you to think about your favorite movie. Or just any movie, okay a movie that you've probably seen more than one time think a movie that you mold over in your mind later after you watch the movie okay so now that we've got a movie established in the mind, do you know every line of the dialogue in that entire movie? Do you know every um, song that was played in that movie and who wrote it? Because all that information is in the back of the, uh, uh, the movie. We probably didn't take that information in. Okay. Now the laptop actually has a much better memory. Because they not only remember every dialogue piece, they, the computer also remembers every pixel. Frame by frame by frame. If the computer picks it up and the computer is functioning correctly, then it can play that movie back. Totally. But you could not recall or play back a whole movie in your mind. You just can't do it. Okay? The memory systems that we have are shoddy. Except for one thing. The human memory system is far superior than animal memories. Animals don't remember much. Humans remember quite a bit. So I would say that offhand, you could say that animals, depending upon which animals or species, would remember maybe 1% or 2% of what's happening to them throughout their lives, and humans will remember 3 or 4%. So that's double the amount, maybe triple the amount that an animal can, can learn, but the amount that we lose. And we lose information coming in, we lose information in the way that it's stored, and we lose information in the way that memory comes out. In other words, we actually construct memory. There are many occasions, um, Madam uh, Madeleine Albright is a very, very clear example of this. She's one of my favorites. She was the Secretary of State or uh, no, the Attorney General of the United States during the Clinton administration. And there was a huge scandal with Madame Albright because before she had been the attorney general, she was the big head DA, district attorney in Miami. And that a few years after she uh, left that post, a whole lot of women started putting things together. They got in communication with each other and found out that they had all been lied to. And this is what the lies were, was that each one of these women put a a brother or an uncle or a teacher or someone in jail for rape because they were raped when they were children, except that as adults, they go back and they recognize that they were tricked into claiming that they were raped and that they actually weren't. But as children, they constructed those memories. The social workers, in other words, Madam uh, Madeline Albright wanted so badly to get a whole bunch of convictions that the police, the prosecutors, and especially the social workers and the psychologists working with these girls, put memories in those girls' minds, and then they were and then they remembered, and then later they recognized that it wasn't true. That they had put Uncle Bob in jail for no reason at all. And they were greatly remorseful. It was a huge deal that this came out. I guess all of you are not old enough. Maybe Tim will remember this happened in the 1990s. I mean, it was a big, big issue. About a dozen girls or more uh, accused a family member of rape. And they were um, prosecuted and, and jailed. And the rapes didn't happen except in the minds of the girls. And those rapes got into the minds of the girls because they were convinced. Now that is what we're talking about is ignorance. That we remember things that don't happen. We sometimes can't tell the difference between a dream and a reality. Another one is, is that you have a great, big, beautiful thought that's in the middle of people and they're talking and you're talking and you share this big thought and then later you find out from one of them you didn't tell us that you thought about it you intended to tell us but you didn't tell us but you remember telling us okay this is what memory is really all about it's pretty shoddy the sankara is a bunch of old past stuff that's of not much value and it's the sankara then the ignorance leads to the Sankara buildup. And that is, um, let us say, going to sit there for a minute. And now let's go to consciousness. Consciousness actually is, in ways, a kind of a Sankara also, in the sense that the eyes are part of the body. And the body is made up of compounded things. And so it's almost kind of a play on words in the Pali. That uh, the body, and in fact, it talks about it in Sutra number nine that uh, Robert and I uh, are going to do someday, where the Sankara is listed as three kinds of Sankara. One is the bodily Sankara, which will give rise to our senses. And then there is verbal Sankara, which is actually all of the stuff that we were told. And remember, all of the rules, all of the ways that things should be done. Do your homework, clean your room, doing all the things you were told to do. And then the third is the Chitta Sankara, which is actually the emotional memory or our hearts. And all of these have compounded things or stuff that's added to. So when that natural eye then sees a natural event with the eye, that would be an eye consciousness now to be honest with you the word consciousness in english has two different definitions and so right now i'm just introducing it with just one definition and the one definition is sensory input is a kind of consciousness we are conscious of for instance when the siren uh, howls you can hear it and you become conscious of it you can actually be conscious of The chair that you're sitting in, because you can feel the chair on your hips, on your legs, on your back. You can actually experience that chair. You can be conscious that the chair is there. And if the chair was ripped out from under you, all of a sudden you would be conscious of that, too. Before you hit the ground, you would be conscious that the chair had been moved. So. This is the sensory input. Now, what we do with that sensory input is try to understand it. And the understanding then, the process of understanding, is what is called perception. In the Pali, is referred to both as perception in the sense of um, sanya, but in the Petita Samuppada, it's used and referenced as nama rupa. Nama Rupa means that the Rupa is there, the reality of what we saw, the chair that we're sitting on, or the sight that we saw with the eyes is a Rupa, it's a physical object, it's real. The sound that comes to the ear. Now, the, the, the voice may be telling a lie, but the sound of that lie is real. And so we take the reality, the Rupa, and we try to understand it. Through the process of perception. And this is where the Sankaras come back in. They come in at the perception. So that we use our past. In order to understand the present. Otherwise it's just raw data. But in fact a very very tender input Only takes raw data. They don't do much processing. Because they don't have a memory system built up at all. But over time, over a short period of time, in fact, the child will learn how to maneuver his hands. A very, very tender infant of less than uh, two days, three days old cannot even manipulate their hands. They can see a mobile above their eyes, and they will swing their hands around to try to play with the mobile. And they, they keep doing that, and pretty soon they'll start making the connections of how to actually grab it. And so this is something that we do as a tender infant with a mobile right in front of us. And then later, as an adult, we do that same thing. When a new mobile or a new piece of information is presented to us, we try to grab a hold of it. We try to make sense out of it. We try to perceive it or to understand it. And by understanding it, that means that we have to place it in context. And the context is our memory system, which we have already defined as shoddy. And so when we actually understand something or bring it about that we've got it, then there is a new kind of consciousness. And the Pali for that one is the Salayatana. Now the Atana are the sense organs and the Salayatana are the internal sense organs. That, in fact, whenever we think up something, we have to think it up in sight, sound, touch, all of those kind of things that we have as sensory input. There are some kinds of sensory inputs that's available to some animals, but humans don't have it. An example of that is odors for a dog. That odors are a major part of the way that dogs live, but for humans, odors are not important. Another example would be um, honeybees who are collecting uh, nectar from flowers. They go and by getting the nectar from the flowers, they touch the flower, they buzz around it, they spread pollen or whatever like that. And that changes the colors of that flower, but it does at the infrared level. And so because humans can't see it, you can look at a field of flowers and you won't know which uh, flower has been uh, nectarized or picked by the the bees. But a bee can fly over that uh, patch of flowers and know immediately that flower has not been harvested and all the others have because they can see them. Okay, so. This is what we mean by the Saliatani is, is that the bees have a sensory input and they have a memory system for that. And they can understand things and put it together in a way that humans cannot. So we actually now have two kinds of consciousness. And both in the Pali and in English, we use the word consciousness or uh, in the Pali, the word is Venia. And we use it in two ways. One is the actual sight that comes in, I see. And then the other kind of consciousness would be referred to as I see what you mean. I see what you mean. And when we say I see what you mean, that's an understanding as opposed to just I see something and I don't understand it because I don't have any input to reference it with. So we have now talked about ignorance, sankara, vinya, um, sanya, or nama and salayatana, and that salayatana, uh, or that kind of consciousness, or that kind of knowing, is what impacts us. The actual scene did not impact us. Let us say that you have a uh, two people are standing in the road. And both of them see someone across the street. And based upon the way that he is dressed, let's just say it like that the way that this guy is dressed, these two people have a completely different reaction to him. They saw physically the same thing, but what they saw in their mind was completely different. And they had different reactions to it. An example of that would be someone in a nun's habit, and that um, one of the people, that saw her was a student in a Catholic school where he got beat by nuns. The other one is a seminary student who is uh, uh, about to be ordained as a priest. Those two people, when they see the nun, are going to have completely different reactions to him based upon their past. And so our past always influences not Influences the input of the present moment, but it does influence what we do with that information in the present moment. And it's that information that contacts us. The actual site, the actual nun's habit did not contact those guys. That was just a site contact. What really contacted them was what they did with it on the inside based upon their, their past. Okay, so let's stop there for a moment. Uh, um, Robert, you got your hand up.
1: Yep, as usual. (laughs) So um, so uh, one criticism I've read of AI is that um, it it basically makes decisions um, only through processing choices and decisions that have already been made, and thus it precludes any opportunity for originality. You know, like an example of that is that Netflix uh, uses AI to design and come up with ideas for its new TV shows. So they keep creating kind of rehashes of the same old stories and people are getting kind of tired of it. But the algorithm has determined that those are the most effective stories at, at gaining viewers. So some people say that right now we live in an age with a death of originality. Um, because AI is creating all the content and AI only knows how to pick from the past. But humans seem to be able to be more imaginative than simply picking from the past. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Well, okay, yes. Creativity is a little bit different than recognition. What we're Hmm. talking about here is recognition of something that is almost always based upon Past Now, let us say that there are three now, the AI machine and these two guys see someone coming down the street, okay, and each one of them is going to do something different, but the AI is only going to do stuff based upon its own knowledge base, which may be nothing but just millions of photos, which may or may not have a nun's habit in there. The other two guys are going to do something with that information and it may be creative. That in fact, one of the possibilities that the AI is not going to do would be uh, what that guy that had nuns as teachers. He just happens to have a yardstick or a ruler in his backpack and he charges right up to that uh, nun, grabs her palm of her hand, And spanks it with that ruler, because that's what happened to him from nuns. Okay, that was his creative response. So, in that sense of uh, creative um, uh, response, humans have a whole lot more information, at least this year, than any AI machine. But there may come a time, you see, when AI uh, is, uh, let us say, put into robots, and they go out into the world and just collect data randomly. What then? Will the AI machine take a ruler and and spank a nun's hand? Probably not, because he was not in her class getting his hands spanked. So the, uh, uh, the, the point is, is that we cannot yet um, compare human creativity with AI creativity because AI is still in its infancy. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, I did have a long conversation with Eno on this because it was part of the coursework that he was doing to get his degree in philosophy. Um, where the question is not, will AI turn uh, nasty on its own, but rather the AI will operate based upon the information that it's fed, and so the humans will be feeding the information to the AI. And so Vladimir Putin would do different things with AI than... Uh, Aunt Susie would do with AI. In other words, it has to do with the intent. That's one of the things that we can understand. And right now, we don't have AI sophisticated enough for it to really have much intent or greed and ill will, that they're not programming that into the AI. The other thing about AI is, is that. Um, it requires energy, it requires power. And that almost always that power is going to, um, let us say, be temporary. That it's going to be in batteries or something like that. But um, you could say that I would perhaps be more afraid of a great big giant uh, Neanderthal with a club who is chasing me than a robot chasing me, because all I have to do is figure out where the off switch is on the robot. To where the the big Neanderthal, he doesn't have that same kind of off switch that we can find. Maybe the only thing, the off switch that he has is club him in the head, but where the AI Uh, It's going to be electrical and electrical engineers will always go looking for where the electrical power goes. So um, I wouldn't worry too much about AI because right now we don't have any AI in our class or our group here. That what we have to do is uh, consider what would a human do? Because the humans are both much more sophisticated than the AI in general, uh, but we're not as technically sophisticated in a particular area like facial recognition. I mean, humans are very good at facial recognition. You recognize people by their faces all, all the time. And that, in fact, you can see the picture of an old, old lady and see a picture of her when she was in her 20s. And you can see the resemblance. Yes, this is the same person, right? But we have not, each individual one of us has not actually analyzed millions and millions of photos. And so we're not nearly as good at facial recognition as the AI would be. Anybody volunteer to go look at a million photos (laughs) so that you can figure out how to do facial recognition? No, you did facial recognition offhand as an infant. An infant knows the difference between a stranger and a mother. And so um, we have gotten our own kind of ways of of, uh, processing data that's different. So anyway, there's not a whole lot to say about AI. Um, because AI is not the issue. What is the issue is, can we reprocess or undo some of the ignorance that we picked up when we were really little? When we were uh, uh, young kids in school, we made decisions that were based in ignorance we didn't have the kind of processing that we needed but we made that decision we put it into our grab bag of tricks and now we're using that information and using that skill as an adult ineffectively because it was based on ignorance in the first place and that's what contacts us is the fact that everything that we know is polluted with our past so, the question is, are you going to pollute things now in this present moment with recent past or really, really old past? In other words, we're saying that we can, in fact, start putting some useful, valuable, wholesome, non ignorant new information into our kit bag and then start processing using that data rather than using. Um, The old, old stuff that is non-effective. An example of that, the meditator, when he first starts practicing meditation and the mind wanders away, the first thing that will happen is, oh, no, the mind wandered away. This is hard. Well, that's the way that he thought when he was a child. Many students will continue to do that when the mind wanders away from their object of meditation. Oh, this is hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I don't know what the problem is over and over and over again, because they're still using that old data, even though they have been it's been proven to them that they can change their mind. That's why I use the example of red and green. Everybody think about the color red for a moment. Get it in your mind. To understand you know what red is. And now think of green. Understand what green is. And the point about this little exercise is to recognize that you can change your mind from red to green. That we need to practice to know that over and over again, that you can change that we don't have to get stuck with this old AI or this old programming rather, and that we can add some new wholesome data. And then when we process something, we process it with something, some new data. So um, the whole point then is to understand that it's this processed data that contacts us. And that if we start having new memories of wholesome success, then that will pile on to the old failures from the past and outweigh them or cover them over. So that uh, in later times when we process data, we'll be processing it based upon better data from better process recently and come up with a better solution. So basically what that uh, means is, is that in the old days when X would happen, I would always feel Y. But now when X happens, I don't have to feel Y, I can feel Z. And I have to make that effort to change the Y to a Z. And when X happens again, now it's going to be easier to do Z rather than the old way of doing Y. And I keep practicing doing Z over and over again. So the next time when X happens, Z will pop up rather than the Y. And so this is how we practice. We want to practice over and over and over again to develop the skill of doing things in the moment rather than uh, lazily just assuming it's like it was in the past, like when we were in diapers. And start processing data in the present moment. So, this is the, um, uh, the way that we can understand this early part of Paticca Samuppada. Another way of understanding it, which is an important point, is to understand that so far in this uh, sequence of Paticca Samuppada, we've been talking about actually the five aggregates. What are the five aggregates? The body which we've mentioned. We've also mentioned, not quite yet, but we're about to start talking about feelings. And then we've already talked about consciousness and perception and the memory system of the Sankara. Now, the body is not who I am. The body has changed over time. That, in fact, there was a time when the leg was broken. But it wasn't me that was broken. It was just a leg that was broken. And and one of the things that we do in our society is we ignorantly assume that I am the body. That if I can make the body more beautiful, then I am more beautiful. This gives rise to the cosmetic industry. People thinking that I am not good enough, so let me paint the body Make the body beautiful, and then I will be beautiful because they attach to the body. We also attach to uh, our knowledge. We attach to our consciousness. We attach to our feelings. In fact, we attach mostly to our feelings in the sense of the language we use, like I am frustrated, I am sad, I am angry, I'm happy today, in the sense that the feeling, whatever it is, I become that. And what we are actually beginning now to practice is to see through direct observation that I am not the body. I can't control it. It's going to grow old. It doesn't grow young because I want it to. It does not get thin and then fat when I want it to. You can't change the age of the body. You can't want to be 70 and then the body is 70 years old. We do not have that kind of control over the body. It does not actually belong to this thing called me. That at best, I'm a guest in this house. And I'm not it. I do not own it. well, if I am not the feelings and I am not the body and I am not my memory systems, I'm not who I was in the past, I am not this process that we're calling perception and I am not that sensory input. In other words, I'm not all any of these five Sankara uh, uh, aggregates. Then where does the self come from? The answer is, is that it comes out of ignorance. Later. So there's another kind of ignorance that happens, and that's the ignorance of this present moment that's based upon the ignorance of the past. So one of the things that we pop into this uh, um, salayatana, one of the things that we process into it with our perception is more ignorance. In other words, we got it wrong when we put it in, we've got it wrong when it comes out. And now we're feeling, we're contacted by and have feelings about how we got it wrong. And so when our feelings are now ignorant, this is where the real teaching of the second noble truth pops into place. And that is is that it is ignorance or delusion that takes the greed and the ill will or the liking and not liking and turns the liking into wanting, grasping, and clinging due to ignorance, and the not liking changes into hatred, um, destruction, wanting to get rid of it, demanding that we get rid of it, etc., like that. So this is where the second part of the teaching of Paticca samuppada comes up, and that is that it's the ignorance that we start with, Now is mixed into the ignorance of this moment so that we are unwise when we have that feeling that arises upon that contact. Okay, I'm actually using the word contact over and over again because that's uh, the the Pali word is pasa and the salayatana is what contacts us and the contact then is what creates our feelings. And the feelings are more than likely going to be ignorant because we have ignorance built into it from the sankara. This is what makes uh, psychotherapy a little bit complicated, is because we don't understand this process. But when we begin to understand this process about how we keep bringing ignorance back in because we're using it out of the past, then we can start processing with more current, up to date, more likely correct non-ignorant information this is what bhikkhu buddhadasa talks about wisdom at the point of contact that that the salayatana that we come up with may or may not be correct we have to understand that we may not be correct with our uh, assumptions or our made up new information and it would be better rather than jumping on the bandwagon of I don't like it or I like it, is to go back to the um, consciousness and gather more information. This is the trick, is, is that once we get information, we want to jump to a conclusion to where a better thing to do would be to go get more information and more information so that we can do a better job of processing it To come up with something that's more correct. So wisdom at the point of contact. Means that we are wise now. To how we feel. If I like something. Then I know that that's all there is. Is that I like it. Okay. Let's say that there is a female. That has on makeup. She has put on the makeup. To become what she calls attractive. Which means that. She wants it to be attractive to men. So the man then sees the girl, but he doesn't see the girl as the actual girl. He sees the girl as she's presenting herself, including all of the makeup, which you could also think of as part of the Sankara. In other words, she, you can see by the makeup that she is making the statement, I am the body, but we don't make that connection often We just say, ah, beautiful girl, I want it, I want it, I want it, I got to have it, oh, let me have her phone number, oh, let me get in contact with her, oh, I got to go see her, okay? Why is that? Is because that's the old way that we processed. I like it, therefore I want it. But if we do this wisely, then when we like something, then we can know, oh, I like it, but that's enough. But in fact, there's a really beautiful story about um, uh, Achan Cha and uh, Achan Samedo. They were at a, um, uh, a festival where all of the young women were dressed up. All the Thai girls were in their best costumes. Not necessarily sexual, just well done. And Achan Cha uh, asked uh, Samedo, well, what do you think? And my Samedo, having been to Watson on and understood the teaching, he knew that this was a trick question and he and his answer was brilliant. He says, I like it, but I don't want it. Now, that's wisdom at the point of contact. I like it, but I don't want it. Be- because if I want it, now I'm going to be in danger. It would be uncool for Tomato to get off of the monk's dais or wherever he was sitting at that time and go start chatting up the girls. And so he recognizes that that's a little bit dangerous. I don't really want to go chat up the girls. It's just better that I just see it and like it.
1: Yes, Robert. I... I'm just curious, does that happen very often in Thailand, where the monks will go and talk to the the ladies? Absolutely not. (laughs) I would imagine, yeah.
0: No. Uh, that, That monks don't touch people, not even each other, and monks do not initiate conversations with lay people, except in special circumstances in the sense that, well, the person came to the watch, for the Dhamma talk, and so they initiated it kind of anyway. But the young girls who were coming to the Wad all dawned up, they're not there to initiate um, uh, a whoop to do with, with a monk. All right, and so if the monk goes to approach them, that's a, a, a problem. Um, here's one. There's, this is actually something that I still practice. I learned this the hard way over and over again. And that is, imagine that you're at the Watt and it is crowded with people. And the women are in the kitchen and the whole pack of them there. They're within inches of each other if they're not actually touching. And the bathroom is on the other side of the kitchen. And the mom wants to go to the bathroom. How does he get to the bathroom? The answer is, is that he stands and he waits, hoping and probably that one of the Asian women there will know exactly what's going on and she will be the one who moves the other women out of the way. In fact, it was in one case that the, uh, the women were sitting in the hallway. The whole hall was, was filled with women sitting on the floor you could not get to the bathroom without touching every one of them because of the way that they were sitting all right and so the monk has to just stand there and wait until they get the idea that he's about to cramp in his robe <laughs> and he needs for you to get up and get out of the way
2: <clears throat>
0: but that's part of the part of the training that in the beginning the young monk would uh, would think so badly he had to get to the bathroom. That getting to the bathroom was the important thing. It didn't matter how many people he touched or, or went by. But uh, as he practices and, and um, comes to understand uh, the rules, we'll just let the lay people move out of the way for us. Now, fast forward to present time, I still do that. Even for the dogs, if the dog is standing in the way, I'll wait. Or if a human is standing in the way, if daughter is standing in the doorway, I'll just stand there waiting for her to move. It's actually a good practice. Rather than, oh, I want this, I'm going to go there and I'll go do whatever I need to do. Step on whoever I need to step on, brush by the people, whoever they are, because I've got to get to the toilet. Right, so we begin to change that mentality. Is is that I'm only going to go to the toilet when it is a free passage to get there, and so we don't move things around. So that's the answer to your question, at a at a fairly detailed level. That no monks do not is, initiate. They don't initiate. They just hang back. It's actually uh Quite a lot of freedom to do it that way You'd be surprised at what power I mean any of you guys If you walked into that similar situation You couldn't get 50 women to move for you You would have to Go wind your way through them But a monk he comes and stands And 50 people are going to start moving out of the way To give him passage Now that's power <laughs>
1: do you depe- think depe- part of the benefit of, oh sorry god no go ahead do you think part of the benefit of the, vinaya, the vinaya is to um, provide plenty of opportunities to sharpen one's sati because there are so many rules like this and i would imagine it's actually kind of beneficial in the sense that they would keep you remembering oh, and waking ab- up
0: absolutely If you never hear about it, then uh, we're going to ignore it completely. But if you understand, um, here's an example of that, Um, is uh, malicious gossip. It's actually put out in the vinaya as that one monk does not talk to a second monk about a third monk with the understanding of trashing him or separating them as friends. And at the highest level, that would be called a sangha de sassa, that the monks don't talk to each other about breaking the, the, the sangha. They don't cause divisions. That's one of the, That rule right there that I just mentioned is the reason why the sangha is still 2,500 years old, still in existence, With millions of participants at any particular time, uh, any decade, for the past 2,500 years, there have been thousands to millions of people, part of the Sangha, because of this one rule. You don't trash others. And that is one of the most difficult rules for Westerners, because we go around trashing everybody and everything. We will join a political party just to trash the other party. (laughs) We'll join this religion just to trash that religion. We'll become a patriot of this country just so that we can trash that other country over there. So this whole idea of... Hello, Scott. This whole idea then about um, malicious gossip is a very, very valuable rule. But I can't give you guys rules. That's not my business, that in fact, I would like for you to understand that uh, rules like uh, malicious gossip, the Buddha talks about this. But malicious gossip actually goes back to my favorite sutta, number 117, uh, the Great Forty, where he's talking about that malicious gossip is the wrong, false speech that we will engage in when the mind is not noble. So if you want to trash somebody or put them down or anything like that, uh, either in emails or in talking or in questions or even in your mind when you're saying, oh, that dude wrote a book and now he's in the red light district. He must be a terrible human being. You know, that's the kind of um, uh, language that we would have. And then we wake up to that and recognizing, oh, that's only pollution in my own mind. I don't really know the situation. All I know is the hearsay that I have picked up. Why did I even bother to pick up that hearsay? And worse still, why am I repeating it? Let's stay with the facts. Let's stay with reality. And the reality is, is that we don't know what happened. Let's leave it that way. Rather than inventing something or making something up. Which is what we're prone to do. We make up stuff all the time and think it's true. Especially if we're told that it's true by somebody else who also made it up in their mind. So when you've got a whole bunch of people that make up the same story, they're more than likely all going to believe it. And so uh, this is what malicious gossip is really all about. is uh, uh, Gossiping is just talking about another person. Malicious is when we're talking about it in the sense of that I want you to not go to that Dhamma teacher because he's been in the red light district, okay? That's kind of a separation. We're trying to divide you up. That's the Sangha decessive, the breaking of the Sangha. And we want to keep the Sangha together. It's ordinary minds that want to divide to conquer, and we're here going to unify to conquer. And so that's the point about the uh, uh, malicious gossip. And it's, um, it's in the Vinaya, but it's also in the Sutta from the perspective of how the mind works. And so now you can take the rule uh, from the Vinaya that one monk does not talk about a third monk to a second monk in a disparaging way. We also do not tell direct lies. Why? Because if we're telling a direct lie, that means that we're wanting to hide some bad behavior or we're wanting to get something. And so if we uh, start recognizing that those rules that the monks have are actually training, they're training rules. But in fact, that's what the word precept really means, that this is a training rule. It's not an actual rule. And so um, it's. Let us say, unfortunate that so many magically oriented people will say, oh, the comma machine will come get you. If you kill somebody, you will have to get killed sometime in the future. Actually, the reality is is that if you kill someone, you will kill yourself over and over and over again in your own mind because of the bad state that we were in when we harmed someone. And so the precepts are actually uh, there to help foster wisdom so that we don't have to go kill people to figure out what a stupid thing that is to do. That we can work off the wisdom of others. And the wisdom of the Buddha would point out that if you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to go kill anybody. So it's much better for you to get your mind into a state of not wanting anything, rather than just merely abstaining from killing someone, or how badly you want to kill him. Is to recognize you want to kill him, and that that's the problem is your desire. Your desire is based upon ignorance, and so this is the teaching of uh, the Patika Samapada is to recognize. Uh, and we can use these rules as training rules or training exercises. So, Robert, you still got your hand up.
1: Yeah, you know, as you were mentioning the uh, clinging to an identification with various traditions and religions, it made me think that um, the reason people do cling into traditions, religions, etc. Is such that they can craft an identity more often than not, rather than actually investigating the ideals of whatever organization or religion it is they belong to. Um, mm-hmm. And so, could you say then that the identification or the desire to identify with groups is kind of an error of personality view? You know, that's really what it resides in. Like, where do you think that that comes yes. from? Yes. That's exactly right,
0: that when we have the personality view that I have a personality that I'm, um, um, uh, let us say, not everlasting, but not um, uh, very temporary. That it, in fact, uh, persistent, let's say, over a lifetime, that I'm the same person over many years is the delusion that we have. And that gives rise to the personality view, that the main teachings of the Buddha, a lot of people misunderstand what that personality view is all about. The real teachings of that personality view, which is, by the way, the first better, is to understand that you can change, that you are not fixed, you are not a particular personality. The Johnny Depp uh, that made the first movie is not the Johnny Depp that's in court recently. And we make a major mistake when we think that it's the same guy. But we make that same mistake with ourselves, that think not only things can change, they do change. And if we understand that things are changing, now we have the option of guiding that change And that's when we begin to change our uh, personality is because we can change it. And we recognize that we can change the personality that I'm not what I was yesterday. Yesterday, I was the one who wanted to have the uh, uh, those four hard drives backed up. Today, I'm the guy who is pleased that those four hard drives are backed up. Not the same dude. Right? If we can understand that we are changing constantly, then um, that personality view kind of falls apart in a way that if I kill someone and then later I'm going to be punished, the person who is getting punished is not the person who actually committed the crime. And yet our government requires that. It requires that, oh, we got to punish the guy who did that to where, in fact, the guy who did it, did it out of anger, and now he's all remorseful, and you think that it's the same guy. It's not the same. We keep changing, that everything is constantly in flux. Everything is changing based upon things that contact us and the way that they contact us. And so sometimes we like it. Sometimes we don't. Or as you've heard me say, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. We're just constantly in a process of change. If we wake up to that, then we can guide that change. And so this is the real teaching of Paticca Samapada: just because I like it doesn't mean that I have to have it. Let's have some wisdom at that point and recognize it all. That's going to be dangerous to have that one. Let me just appreciate it. Let me just like it without having to have it. Or I can endure this. I don't have to get rid of it. That Yeah, I can have a little bursitis in the elbow or let's say some back pain. I don't have to go get surgery for it. I don't have to get rid of it. I don't have to go take pain pills. I can, in fact, handle pain. I know how to do it. I learned it to go anchor retreats. And I may not like pain, but I know that I can handle it. And so that's that uh, wisdom at the point of contact, so that when I don't like that pain, that doesn't mean that I have to go do something about it. One of the things that I could do, and in fact, is enjoy how intense it is. And really investigate and experience it, knowing that I don't like it. But normally when we don't like something, we try to push it away. We don't want to know it. We don't want to have any experience with it. But when we are practicing well, practicing correctly, then even though we don't like something, doesn't mean that we have to get rid of it.
2: You can investigate it instead So, does anybody else have any
0: questions? We, we turn your mic on
2: um
3: i was I just thought of uh, so the thing you just said about pain um. Wouldn't that be a hindrance to like be experiencing pain or like. How would you be able to experience uh, uh, PT and Suka if you're experiencing like. Um, physical pain, for example, like wouldn't it be more wise to. Um. Try to. Uh, I don't know, adjust yourself or something if you're experiencing that pain. Because I know, like, when I first started uh, meditating, like, I would be convinced that you have to sit and then you can't move at all and have a perfectly straight back and sit perfectly like that. And then I would just, it would just be like a, I would just be sitting there in discomfort and hindrance the whole time without Mm -hmm. experiencing any. So Precisely
0: so. Right. What's the
3: difference? Well, what's, what you're talking about there
0: is actually the very Western mentality. In fact, that's Christianity. That's fla- uh, fla- uh, uh, flagellating yourself. Right? And the idea of, of flagellation, that in fact the Buddha got into that, and this came from the Jains. And there, uh, the teaching is, is that, oh, I can, in fact, handle this present moment because I am good in this present moment. I am not causing any bad comma to happen right now, but all I have left is the old comma that needs to be burned off. Let me go ahead and now start flagellating myself, hurting myself, starving myself, or sitting in a stupid posture. And bring pain on because that will uh, take care of the old bad karma. And then I will live freely without any pain. Right? That's the mentality. The Buddha tried that and he found out it don't work. Then in fact, the new behavior of causing the new pain in the present moment does not alleviate old karma. It's new karma. It's new painful karma that you're doing. Okay, so from that perspective, we can recognize that some pain comes from something that we don't have any control over at all. And some pain comes from our behavior. And if we change our behavior, we can eliminate the pain. An example of that is a broken arm. If you put it into a cast, And it can heal, but it's got to be a good fast. One of the problems with with teenagers, teenagers will often break the forearm bone, one or the other of them. And they'll put a cast on, and the cast then allows their fingers to continue to move so that they can use their hand. That's an absolute disaster. Because while they're moving their hand, they're moving all of those muscles in there, and it prevents the bone from healing. If they really, if the doctors were really going to do it correctly for the dude, they would put a hand plaster down so that he can't use his hands. He could move them and touch them and whatnot, but he wouldn't be able to grasp and and grab a hold of things because it's the grabbing that causes the pain. All right. So that's one of the, an example of something that we can do. Now that the arm is broken. We can go back to the point in time of how the arm got broken, because we can say that either that was in his control, he did something really stupid, or it was not in his control. It happened and he didn't have any control over it. So we have to make that distinction of what uh, is this something, is this pain that I'm doing right now? In other words, not the breaking of the arm, but letting the arm heal because if I use my hands a lot, it'll hurt a lot. So I have to stop using my hands in order to let the arm heal. As you can tell, this is a direct experience. I've done this, <laughs> done that one. All right. And so we have to understand then that many of the pains that we have can be um, alleviated with our behavior. And then some pains cannot be alleviated through our behavior other than how are we going to respond to the pain itself. And one of the ways that we can respond to the pain is by doing whatever we need to alleviate it. For instance, people who are sitting long time in meditation and their their legs hurt, the legs are actually giving them information saying, hey, the circulation has stopped. Or there's too much pressure on this leg at this particular time. You need to move. The leg is telling you that it's uncomfortable and it's an ouchie. And mm-hmm. that if you don't move, you can, in fact, possibly do damage. In fact, I know five guys. I can name some of them off to you because you don't know them. One was a German monk at... Uh, uh, What's the name of the place? Uh, Wat Mahatat. Another one is uh, a monk named Vila Maramsi, which you've heard. Another one is Achan Brahm. Another one was Kantipalo. These guys forced themselves to sit, according to the Goenka and the Mahasi method, to the point that now they can't sit at all. In fact, there's a Subato that's living now in Malaysia that was at Wat Soen Mok, and he left here. Because he could not sit with the monks and he was embarrassed. He needs to be around a place where there are a few monks because he can't sit with the monks because the pain in his legs are too much. That's a real clue right there that uh, that it is possible that you can damage your legs by Mm -hmm. forcing yourself to sit too long. Don't do that. That, in fact, if you understand the real teaching of the Buddha, the sukha is part of the pra- training that we're doing to train the mind to come out of dukkha into sukha, And you can't do that when the body's in pain. So you have to find a way of getting the body comfortable. So let us say, then, that here you are sitting. You've only been sitting for a minute or two in a mosquito bites. The easy thing to do would be to get an ointment and to salve that wound and then come back and pay attention to the mind and continue going. But what a lot of people will do, especially the Mahasi, is that they'll say, never mind, I'm just going to sit here. And now the itching starts and they can't stand the itching. They didn't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, without them even knowing it, they're scratching. <laughs> and then they go, wait a minute, I was not going to move. <laughs> all right, so. The whole problem with this uh, Western mentality of meditation is that we have to endure painful things that we don't need to endure. But I would not recommend that that would be a practice. There is going to be enough reality of things that you don't like and will have to endure anyway. Let that be your meditation practice right then and there. So if you break your arm, then let your hand be your main meditation. You're not going to be grasping and clinging to things with your hand because you want the leg to heal, or excuse me, the arm to heal. If you've got a broken leg, don't walk around on crutches and using that leg, even though it's in a cast, that's going to slow down the healing. You need to sit down and let that leg heal. And so this is how we uh, can tell the difference, then, is is that much of the pain that we have is not uh, self-inflicted, but there's going to be pains. The -hmm. question, then, is how we're going to deal with those. And it's the same way that we're going to deal with not giving ourselves pain unnecessarily. Right. OK, I would strongly recommend you sit in comfort rather than sitting in pain for a long time.
3: Robert, think, uh, Robert has go question.
0: ahead. Yeah, Robert's got a question. Are you on, Robert?
3: Hi, yes.
2: So I was talking with someone earlier this week and they advised me to have no goals. And I've sort of taken that advice and ran with it and I've had really good results. But I've noticed that a lot of, and I've started to notice that a lot of goals and desires and cravings really interfere with my um, interpersonal relationships. But it's so, it feels so difficult to let go of um, certain goals, like the goal of having like a loving relationship, for example, I can see can actually be detrimental to like my just normal relationships because I'll, be wanting validation from someone or I'll want them to fall in love with me and you know so I can be with them and I've noticed that this can like almost spoil like certain relationships and I'm just hoping like if you or anyone else can give me some advice about how to deal with those and uh, those these these goals and these cravings that come up and like how to let them go because they they feel like I I can see that like having these goals is detrimental to my well-being, but at the same time, you know sometimes life feels meaningless without them. Um, but it's, I mean, it's it's just so difficult to let go, of, let go of these things as okay. damaging as that. All
0: right, so here's here's what I would have about the goals, and that is have goals that you can meet. Have little goals that are easy to meet rather than having great big goals that are hard to meet so uh, a big goal that would be hard to meet is to go make friends with 10,000 people so that they'll vote for you and you can become the city dog catcher that would be a great big goal a little goal would be just to go over to the neighbor's house and say hello All right. So the little goals are what we're looking at that I'm not saying become completely goal free. No, there's going to be goals. But the the bigger the goal, then the more likely you're going to be failing at it. And the more likely you're going to be struggling and trying to meet that goal. But if you make your goals small and easy, then you go around feeling like a champion all the time because you keep meeting your goals all the time. All right, And so in the sense of the relationship now that you were talking about is uh, instead of having it as a goal to have a good relationship in a long-term situation, it's better to say, right now, my goal is to smile. And then we can smile. And that's all the goal that we need. Because if you have the very, very small goals, then the relationship will work itself out anyway. Now, back to the issue of the pain that we were talking about before. Sometimes the pain, we have no choice about it. Sometimes the pains will just come. For old people, bursitis will happen. All kinds of things. I'll give you an inventory someday. Uh, But some pains are self-inflicted. In fact, most of the pains are self-inflicted. If we start watching how we self-inflict our pain, um, let us say that the accident did happen and it was painful. But how we deal with that pain can either be even more pain or it can be less pain because that's our choice. Now, let's take this perspective to relationships that you do have control over how you feel. You do have control over how you present the relationship, but you don't have so much control over how other people are going to act. You don't have much control over other people, primarily because they don't have any control over themselves anyway. I, I like the uh, the phrase, uh, uh, won't you be mine? Well, how can she give herself to me if she doesn't even own herself? She's a crowd in there anyway. And sometimes she's up, sometimes she's down. How can I hope that she's going to be mine all the time when she's not even hers all the time? And so that kind of relationship is not the kind that's going to be a difficult relationship because you're looking for it for the long term without giving people the freedom to be. What they already are, which is a bundle of nerves, you know, a a crowd. And so uh, to have a really good relationship with someone requires either one of two things either that she's not a crowd or that you're not a crowd. And so the real goal that you could have is, is to get your own mind together so that you're not a crowd. And one of the parts about the crowd is sometimes you need her, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you really intentionally need her and sometimes you want to get rid of her. We're Very back and forth. Every relationship is like that. Isn't that right, Robert? You know.
1: <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> All right. And so we wind up. Uh, I, I, have a fun
2: little,
1: <laughs> I have a fun little anecdote, a third one about either she's not a crowd or you're not a crowd. Is you have someone that pushes you to not be a crowd. So you know, like my uh, my girlfriend Sandra, you, you might notice I've been on every single one of the last three or four uh, Skype calls because she told me I'm required to go to these weekly uh, song and meetings. <laughs> oh. So and so that was that's kind of fun, but mm-hmm. it's okay. a happy requirement. <laughs>
0: Right. So I think that we pretty well finished this. I want to, um, uh, to round it back up for you, Robert, in the sense of don't make it a big goal to have a big relationship. Make it a little goal of how you're going to handle this moment with him or her. That's all we have to deal with is just this little present moment. And it's OK to have goals. I mean, if you didn't even have the goal to go to the toilet, you'd be pissing all over yourself. (laughs) we got to have little goals. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so let's have little goals. And uh, one of the ways we can do that is by recognizing it with time frame. Okay. Set the time limits for yourself. Is the goal that you have going to be completed in a year? Is it going to be completed within a week? Is it going to be completed within a day? I would recommend that we would have goals only a day long. In other words, by the next 24 hours or tomorrow, and an example of that would be if you're going to go fly someplace, it's actually better to buy the ticket Right before you go. Because you can get bigger discounts that way. Um, and and uh, this is many, many little things like this that we can recognize that, oh, I've got to go to the bank. But since I'm not going to go to the bank today, I don't have to think about going to the bank today. I'll think about going to the bank on the day that I go to the bank. So, this is a way to begin to have a goal s- smaller or shorter in time period. Don't make long plans, make short ones. An example of that is going to university. Don't go so that you can get a degree in four years. Or don't go so that you could get this course. Go to this book right now and read this piece. This is the only goal that you have, is to read this piece. And rather than long-term goals. That so we don't really need long-term goals. We could push those off. In fact, the uh, the possibly the very, very best goal that you can set up is the goal of enjoying this next breath.
2: That's a good goal.
0: Yeah. That's a good goal to have is this next breath. Let's have a good one. That's just good one. one one breath. This is all the gold that I need. If I can survive this one breath, then I'll be good to survive another one. So let's keep our goals very short in terms of time limit as well as ease. Let's set goals that we can meet. The important goals that we're talking about is being able to change the mind to throw wholesome thoughts out. That's the real goal. But not a long-term goal. Just this thought is an unwholesome thought. Let's get this thought out and take a deep breath. And always come back to this present moment. And let's not make long-term goals because we just set ourselves up for disappointment. Oh, someday my prince will come. Until he does, I'm going to be miserable. Mm. So let's not wake about. wake uh, uh, wait until the prince comes. Let's go ahead and take a deep breath and enjoy it right here, right now. Throw the thoughts of the prince out and say, I'm okay right now. I don't need the prince. Because he's going to come only someday. And so bringing our whole goal system back into the present moment or in short durations, one or two days. I used to do this, by the way, with the visas. I would plan months in advance the visas. Got to get a visa every year. And they are really, really a lot of work in the sense of how much paperwork. It's actually a stack of uh, nearly 30 pages. 30 pages of work to do got to get the whole passport. every page of the passport's got to be photocopied, all of your bank statements for the past year, uh, uh, the medical exams is pages and pages long, you've got to have the lease, all kinds of stuff that, that has to be done for that visa, and there's enough to fret over. But now that I've done it uh, many times, I recognize that the only time to think about that visa is the week before I've got to go. Thinking about it two and three months in advance is just a waste of my months moments and makes me feel bad. Because who wants to go deal with government agents? The answer is, hey, if you're ready to go, I do. I like uh, uh, government agents. I make them smile. But if we have the old idea, oh, I don't want to do it, and then we think about the visa months before it's done, we can only feel bad. So let's not have the goal of that visa. It's, by the way, it's due on January the 17th, but it's only going to be like January the 5th or so before I even start thinking about that visa. I don't need to think about it now. If I think about it now, all I can do is feel bad. If I go Xerox all of that stuff now and put it in the closet, I'll forget where it was and have to go do it all over again anyway. So what's the point? Let's do things on time. So that would be the goal. The goal is to be timely. Let's do goals that are right here in front of us and not worry about the big ones. This present moment is the only moment we've got. So let's let's have the goal of spending this moment wisely.
2: Thank you, Damara. That's really inspiring.
0: That's good. I'm really glad. Well, does anybody have any more? We started talking about Petitra Samapada, and we wound up talking about Petitra Samapada. <laughs> this present moment is all we've got. And so uh, let's look at it from that perspective. of What's happening in your mind right now? How do you feel right now? What do you want right now? What do you like right now? That's the kind of way that we practice, is what's happening in the here now. That's why the Buddha called himself Tathagata, the one who is in the here now. So, I see some nodding heads. Does anybody have any comments?
3: Sounds good to me.
0: Sounds good. Okay, Scott. Great. I'm really glad to see you guys. You make my day. <laughs> <I> oh,
1: <could've laughs> you make see
0: you too. my moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you too. Right back at ya. <laughs> All right,
0: guys. Well, let's finish now. Anybody got any last comments or any words?
3: It was good to see you guys. See you next time.
0: Well, I'm setting a goal here. I want to hear from everybody.
2: Thanks very much. Thank you very much, <laughs> you very much. All right. Me. Eric, good to see you.
0: Yeah, Eric, good to see you.
2: Yeah, it was great to see all of you.
0: Where, where are you located right now, Eric? I'm in Missouri. Uh, Missouri. Oh, okay. Go see Vula Moropsy. He's in Missouri. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, walk in on him and plaster him with some meta. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's just an idea. That's not a goal. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, guys. We will see you. Thank you so much.
1: Bye bye. Take care, everyone. Cheers.
0: <laughs> yes. Bye bye. See you.